What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and continuing our month on physician contracts, I've brought on the amazing, the famous, John Apino. He's from Contract Diagnostics, his firm. We're going to go through a lot about physician compensation today. So it'll be a real fun one to dig into on making more money. Before we jump in further into the show, I want to say a special thank you for our sponsor of today's show, which is Advice Media. And now make no mistake, because digital marketing is a science, and Advice Media has created a proven roadmap that gets you from where your practice is now and to where you want it ultimately to be. They call it their pyramid of success, and thousands of clients have proven that their six-stage approach is the optimal way for attracting new patients and retaining current ones. We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to be a digital marketing expert. You have lives to change and save. Give them just 30 minutes of your time to consult with you. They would bet you're doing some things really, really well. And there just might be a few areas where you can improve. And that's where they're going to come in to help you. So just for spending the time with them, they'll also give you a $60 Amazon gift card. You really have nothing to lose. So book your consult today. Check them out. DrPodcastNetwork.com slash advice media. And like we always do, the link is in the description of the show you're listening to us in right now. All right. And as we always do, this disclaimer, you guys know the drill. This is educational purposes only. It's not financial planning, insurance, contracts. He's not your attorney. I'm not your planner. Well, maybe I am, but likely I'm not your planner. And this is not financial advice. So take it that way. I don't think you should actually be taking advice from anyone on the internet. Make sure you're doing your due diligence and that everything is done in accordance to your wishes because personal finance is personal. All right, without further ado, let's jump in and hear from John Apino and dig in with some contract stuff. John, welcome back on the show. Thanks for having me, man. Always a pleasure. This is going to be good because uh, we like making money. I know it's not why everyone gets into medicine. I'm not saying that, but you get up, you get out of bed, you work really hard. You need to be compensated for that. Let's talk all about compensation. So I'd like to just start high level. We did a show last week on the overall macro trends that you're seeing, but I'd like to come and kind of now focus it a little bit more on compensation and what are some of the trends that you're seeing inside of compensation? I know it differs between field and specialty, but let's kind of expand and unpack that a bit. Yeah. So we always tell physicians to your point earlier about, you know, it's not all about the money, but you know, everybody, whether, you know, whether you work at a coffee shop as a barista or you're a physician doing trauma surgery, you trade time for money. And it's important to make sure that the equation lines up with what your expectations are for your family. And so we take obviously discussing compensation very seriously and whether it's about maximizing it or whether it's about minimizing your time or whether it's about, you know, making sure that you're paid fairly or whether it's to make sure that you're the best paid. It's a super important thing to know. And to that end, we've seen lots of different trends over the years. We've always seen, you know, base salaries. We've always seen shift rates. We've always seen bonuses, RVUs or collection bonuses. We're now seeing quality pay kind of come in a little bit more. We're seeing a lot of employers shift to more standard base models instead of RVU production, or they're decreasing the amount of RVU production, or they're going to a pooled RVU production plan for a couple of reasons which we can talk about. But We've always seen the kind of basic structure and all the structures remain very similar. We're seeing some of the nuances change with how those structures are built. Um, obviously, a big difference between academics and between private practice and between a hospital employee position and if and when you become a partner of a group and all those things. But we're seeing, you know, we're seeing this, the same kind of basic structures, just kind of micro changes inside of each individual structure. 
I think it'd be helpful because we have a wide array of people listening to the show, and I'm so thrilled about this. There's some med students that actually listen to the show. Um, we've got a, a decent population of residents and fellows that listen, but for the most part, I'd say the average person listening is somewhere between zero and 10 years out of training. And so if we're thinking about that will actually span quite a bit in terms of a medical career and where someone is, they may not be familiar with all the different terms that you're talking about, right? If they work for academics, they may not understand some of the things that are, you know, coming through and what you're seeing in private practice and in those contracts. So maybe could you just go through and back up for a second and say, Hey, here's what RVU pay looks like and what this means. Here's what quality pay looks like. And here's what that means. And maybe just kind of give a 30,000 foot view of each one of those. So everyone can feel comfortable at least starting on the same page on understanding the different comp models between just the different types of practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'd love to. I think it's a good point. So RVU pays what a lot of people hear. And even some people go to a private practice with a collection model and they'll reference, they'll ask me how much they make an RVU. So the relative value unit is something that CMS puts in place. In a nutshell, you can factor it by a lot of different ways, by geography, by payer mix, by malpractice cost. It can be different in different markets. So neurosurgery might have one market that neurosurgery is different than pediatricians, of course. And you might have one market for neurosurgery that's completely different than another market for neurosurgery based on payer mix. So it's a way for a hospital to make it easier to pay their physicians a bonus based on the amount of work that they're doing. And they can kind of spread it out with a dollar value, say $50 per RVU, that doesn't take into account the patient that has Medicare or Medicaid or private insurance. And then CMS applies a value to a office visit or a procedure. So, you know, maybe you do a quick blood pressure check and you generate one RVU. Maybe you do a, a seven-hour case in the OR and that's worth 12 RVUs. And then your assigned RVU value, 50 bucks per each, would be assigned to that number of units of production that the physician would would have for that given shift or day or month or quarter. And then, you know, collection structure, and those are most typical in a, in a uh, hospital employed situation, or even in a hybrid academic situation, where a physician's working a, a big chunk of their, uh, their time in a, in a, you know, as a clinical physician, not like research or academic or education track. A collection structure would be something that a private practice would use where they might pay the physician a base salary and then a percent of collection, or maybe there's just a percent of collections overall, maybe you know, very similar to how a business owner would have it. So, you know, if you have a hundred dollars that come in the door and you got to pay your staff and you've got to pay all your expenses and then pay yourself whatever's left. And so a, a percent of collections may mean 40%. So if you collect a hundred dollars, the physician might yield $40 of it. And of course, then it does matter if the patient is on Medicare or if they're Medicaid or if they're Blue Cross Blue Shield or if they're cash pay and they don't pay. And so those structures are very common in private practices. And there's lots of nuances in between those structures and lots of risk with them as well. The collection model is typical, something that we'd see in a private practice model. And then we do see the just general base salaries and shift pay. Of course, that could be anything from somebody working as a, a trauma surgeon at a hospital to a physician working in the emergency room, making an hourly rate. And when you look at a practice and, you know, you're looking, maybe it's your first job and you're trying to evaluate different comp models. What is your thought process on, hey, look, I've got three different jobs laid out and they all have three different comp models because you're not going to have all the details of this. How do you guys approach 
that piece of the compensation. Like we're just talking comp. We're not negotiating or anything like just, just laying out what you have there. Like what's your guys's kind of thought process on that? That's where the fun comes in because, you know, just because you have a $200,000 salary with a collection bonus at a private practice, or you have a $300,000 salary with an RVU bonus at a hospital, we don't know which one is the best deal, you know, from a financial perspective, that is. So that's where really understanding this stuff and being able to unpack it and do due diligence and ask good questions of the employer, whether or not it's negotiable or not is important. And so, yeah, I mean, so that's what we start to kind of unpack and figure out now which one is a better deal and what are the expectations of the employer. Some specialties have a traditionally low, low base salary and then a lucrative uh, compensation structure to earn more in bonus. Others are just the opposite. They have a high base salary to retain and recruit good doctors, but there may be bonuses and the potential. So it just, it varies so much, but that's where the fun begins when we start to look at diagnose these compensation structures on how it's set up and what the risk is for the physician. Because just because it's a fantastic structure doesn't mean it's not fraught with risk and the physician shouldn't be cautious going into that particular structure as well. Right. Well, there's risk with everything, right? Anything you do in life, there's risk. Every time you invest, you risk. Every time you don't invest, there's risk in not doing anything too. And so when you're looking at your comp models, there's going to be risk across the board. Some are going to be safer if you're working for a massive academic institution, probably pretty secure, even if a pandemic occurs. Granted, some of these institutions have had massive issues. You're probably going to be a lot safer than if you work for a two physician practice out in somewhere rural America right? That is going to have a lot more risk. So you should be compensated a lot more for that risk. What are some of the questions that just off the top of your head that someone could kind of come up with if they were like, okay, look, I've got three offers. I'm trying to figure out the comp models. What would be an intelligent way to approach this per employer, depending on the comp model? Like what is a decent way to, to approach and tackle that problem? Because I could see this being an issue for many people when they're looking and going like, how do I compare these things? This is tough. Yeah. So I think it all starts with, I mean, number one, understanding what your market value is worth, which can be challenging because, you know, there's surveys that people don't get access to, or there's online that that may or may not be accurate. And there's so many challenges to figuring out what exactly your worth is. So having, you know, friends and colleagues and program directors or a company like ours that can help guide you through that is important. Just having, to your point, just having good questions. Some of the questions that we like to ask is just leaving it open, right? How did you come up with the compensation model? What factors go into the compensation model to kind of understand the base metrics for how they're setting this? Um, maybe they, I've, I've heard, we were doing a negotiation with a neonatology group a while back and we asked them how they set the compensation model and the physician told us they set it the same as they paid the last physician. And I said, well, when was last hire? And he said, seven years ago. So that was the way that he said it, which maybe wasn't the right way. Others use a tri-blend of different surveys. Others comb the market. Others have a third-party company come in. But I think understanding how they set pay, and then if there's a bonus structure in place, understanding their expectations. So what do the other physicians do here? You know, How often does somebody bonus in the first year? What are your expectations for me? I think are all very good questions. And you may unpack in that discussion that there's no chance you're going to bonus. You know, maybe they've got a structure that you get paid a dollar, uh, 50 bucks per RVU over 7,000. And you ask them what the average production is in the department and it's 5,200. So the chances of you bonusing then is pretty slim. So it's safe to say that maybe the bonus structure, however lucrative it may appear, might not be important as you look at that offer to be, you know, competitive with other offers. 
And if it's a collection model, obviously it might depend on what location you're in and how, what the payer mix looks like out there. And, you know, and then understanding the total calculation, if it's just straight 40%, if it's 40% of collections or 40% of buildings or 40% of the profits, if they're taking out various expenses. So I think figuring out the calculation and what goes into it and then understanding the expectation of the, of the practice, um, I think is important as you go to unpack a particular situation. Then, of course, just understanding the local dynamics. You know, maybe it's totally saturated. It's going to be very difficult for you to build your interventional cardiology practice in downtown San Diego. Or maybe there's somebody retiring and they're generating 18,000 RVUs a year and you're going to step right into their practice. So again, both of those situations are very different. And I think as people unpack their comp models, they should take into account all those factors. Yeah, just like personal finance is personal. It's hard to know what's going to come and what kind of comp model is going to look like. And every contract is going to be different and probably pretty complex when they're looking at it. And that's why I think that this whole month is around contracts. It's really important to understand uh, what you're signing because these are massive, massive contracts. I joke all the time. I said it last show. I'll probably say it every show. You're negotiating a multi-million dollar contract because if you stay for your career, at this place. I mean, this could be a five, six, $10 million contract. Like I don't, I think every field and specialty is different, but you could be making a lot of money over a long period of time and you have to get it right the first time because you don't want to start off on the wrong foot because you didn't read through it. You don't know what it is. One of the things that I see a lot, and maybe you can just briefly chat on it, but is the sign on bonus. Yeah. Cause usually there's a lot of caveats or a lot of traps associated with those. We had a client that was, you know, basically said, Hey, this is your signing bonus. We give this to you. No mention verbally that if you leave within a certain amount of time, you pay that back. And so she had been there for about 14 months, absolutely hated it. They treated her terrible. I think there was probably a lot of sexism there that caused that. I've known this person for 15 years. This is literally one of the sweetest people I've ever met. They pretty much just took advantage of her every situation that they could. And she just burned out. She's like, I can't do this. It's not worth making $15,000 more. So she left. And when she left, she had to pay a boatload of her bonus back and that she had not planned for budgeted for and not a client. I would have been looking at that very specifically, but what are your thoughts on the sign on bonuses and how that should potentially influence someone's decision or not, or just maybe the general way that you guys kind of approach those? Yeah, well, and that is one of the trends that we're seeing is if there's a signing bonus, and I just got off the phone with an employer that said that they used to pay signing bonuses, they haven't been paying them since COVID, you know, and so it's changing a little bit, but we still see them in probably 70% of deals. So how are they structured? The stats are that I think it's now 58% of physicians leave their first position out of training between second and third year. So the stats are that they're going to leave, right? And employers know that. An employer knows that a physician leaving could cost upwards of $100,000 or $200,000, depending on which report you look at. So they do everything they can to kind of keep the physician there. One of those ways is by you know, having a non-compete or having them buy tail insurance or repaying a signing bonus that they may have already spent. And so we see it now how, you know, sometimes we'll see $5,000 or $10,000 and it's forgiven over three years which seems crazy, you know, that higher the dollar amount, maybe the longer time the repayment or the forgiveness could be. Sometimes an employer has to spread out a signing bonus over so many years to keep you under what they deem fair market value um, as far as how they package and bundle the totality of your contract. Um, but, you know, we typically see 
anywhere from $10,000 to $50,000, depending on the situation. We've seen upwards of $200,000 for signing bonus. Um, we see zero, of course. Um, repayment provisions can be anywhere from a year to five years, depending on the situation. We like it if the repayment is monthly. So if it's a three-year repayment, having it go away one thirty-sixth every single, every single month instead of all at three years, because your friend who left after 14 months, instead of having to pay all of the money back, would have had to pay the remaining balance of the 36 months. We also feel it should be it should be forgiven if anything happens outside the physician's control. So, you know, a no-cause termination by the employer or a death or a disability or a non-renewal or a decrease in pay or, a, you know, a, a breach of contract. So there's ways that physicians can kind of help balance them and make them fair. But yeah, we do see them. Typically, if I had to give like a blanket statement, I would say ten dollars to $12,000 of forgiveness per year. So if it's a $30,000 bonus, I would expect two or three years of forgiveness. If it's $10,000 or less, I would expect one year or less for forgiveness. Just kind of basic guidelines for different physicians. Yeah, it's a good, a really good starting point. One of the ones that I've seen, and it maybe not as much with COVID now, but prior to COVID for sure was seen was that they were signing you know, residents or fellows up a little bit early and they were giving them a stipend bonus all the way until the start date. I mean, that's a cool thing, you know, for a resident to be able to have extra income coming in when they feel very poor because they're not getting compensated very well. I, re- I yeah. remember that. That was a long six years of three years of residency and three years of fellowship with, with my wife. Um, but I also think those are very dangerous because those allow the physician to start spending money that they're not truly earning yet and not learning those money behaviors. But also there's a lot of strings attached to that. So I would just kind of word of caution to everyone listening be very careful if you're in that situation. That's awesome they're doing it, but you still need to have real sound money habits and a good relationship with money. A piece that you touched on, and then we'll move on to this though, is the 58% or roughly wherever that is, that someone leaves within two to three years, I think is a really, really big point that I want to drive home with everyone listening, is if you think one out of every two of you, let's just say it's 50-50, is going to leave your job within two to three years. This is one of the reasons why I tell you, please do not buy a home until you are absolutely sure you love the job, you love the area, you love the people you work with, because if you buy a home and it's flat, doesn't move in price or moves up very little, you are going to basically lose 10% of the purchase price of the home because you're going to pay agents a 3% to sell, 3% for the buyer agent to come in. You're going to pay taxes, insurance, and transfer tax, all this other stuff that gets factored in. You're going to lose a lot of money and it is something that if you just wait just a little longer and make sure that you love the area to your end and that you love the job and you love the compensation and you love the people you work with because the people you work with is probably more important than anything else because that is going to cause you to either love or hate your job the most. You got to make sure that you think through that and John's telling you that 58% of you are going to leave after two to three years. Please be very careful in setting down massive fixed payments, setting down routes before you're actually ready. I think that's a really interesting stat. I thought it would be about that high. I'm still a little shocked that it is that high, but then based on our client mix and who we've been talking to and the people in the community, I'm not that shocked. I always tell people it's like the divorce stat. You know, we've heard the 50% of marriages end in divorce, which is true. 
But if you break up the stat to people who get married when they're 18 versus people who get married when they're 36 or people who make over 100,000 or under 50,000 or people who have a high school degree or someone who has a doctorate degree, the data is very, very different. And that's why I don't know for sure, but I would assume people who have their contracts reviewed, people who understand their situation better, people who go on three or four different site visits and interviews and entertain different offers. They don't just stay somewhere and go to the first big dollar sign that they see. I think I would assume that the stats would be dramatically different. I will tell you that we don't have, you know, 58% of our folks calling us back in two years saying, this is a nightmare. I got to get out. Um, You know, and we have some and a handful, but, you know, it doesn't seem to be as much of a surprise to them as to someone who calls us and says, I didn't have you look at my first contract and it's a nightmare. And so to that end, um, make sure everybody gets their contract reviewed by somebody who knows what they're doing. But then the other thing is not understanding the provisions for termination or what happens if you get let go. We saw a general surgeon that went out, signed the job out of training, didn't know where he wanted to go. So just signed his first job that he had an offer on in California, wanted to be in Baltimore. Uh, Again, general surgeon worked for 18 months and had to tail out of that deal. $78,000 a year and a half. In. I don't know if he bought a house, so you, but you figure if he had bought a house in California and he had to have transaction costs, to your point, and then drop 80 grand on a tail insurance policy just to get to where he wanted to be the whole time in Baltimore, he may have worked the whole year for free, you know, and uh, it's challenging. So there's all kinds of really important things and, and making those financial, you know, catastrophic mistakes earlier in a career, I would have to tell you and your listeners uh, can be can, can take a while to make up for and get to the positive side of that transaction and mistake. Yeah, it's devastating to hear. I hate hearing stories like that because it's it is easily avoidable. The thing is, is that when you get a contract reviewed, right? And I'll I'll use you guys as an example, right? I'm going to go through. I'm going to get a contract reviewed. There's only so much you know about the business, the people, and everything. Through I don't care if you did three site visits. There's only so much you're going to know, right? And at some point, you're going to find out the real job, the real thing, but you won't find it out until you actually start, right? Yeah. There's no way to like test drive this and be like, hey, can I shadow you for six months and see what it's like to work with you guys and see if you're actually, you know, crazy or if you guys are the life of the party and going to be a blast to work with. You know, you don't know how the EMRs are going. You don't know how the systems work. You don't know how the staff that's going to support you is actually going to support you or not. Those are things that you just don't know. And there's no way even a contract or site reviews or however many questions you're going to ask, there's no way to strip out all of those potential risks. And again, comes back to just be careful with your finances when you're looking at these things. Don't overextend because you think this is the best thing ever. You know, oh, I'm going to buy this dream house and then find out that if you'd have waited six months later, another house came on the block that was like, was significantly better for you and your family and everything else. What are you going to do? Get up and move and do it. Like, it's just, you got to pump the brakes a little bit and realize that you can't mitigate every risk, but I am huge, huge proponent and fan. That's why we're doing an entire month on contracts of getting this stuff reviewed because it is serious money. This is how you make all of your money. Think of how much time I spend on the show talking about what you do with that money, right? We don't really talk about actually ensuring that this thing is going to make you money and that you will be happy, right? We deal with once it hits your bank account, I'm the expert in helping you guys figure out what to do with it, right? But I bring on John to specifically talk through and be the expert on how you ensure that the money that you're earning is at least in your best interest and, or maybe even tilted in 
more in your interest uh, than the employer and making sure that contractually you are putting together and you understand what is in that contract. Do not be a doctor and just scroll to the bottom and sign. It is easy. I know that. And I tell everyone who signs up with us, I can't change anything in my contracts. It's approved at the SEC and zip, but I'll happy to explain anything there is. But please don't be a doctor and just scroll to the bottom and sign. Like, yeah, to to that end, the, one of the many things that we like to coach everybody on is, it, is why is the position open? Now, maybe it's an expansion role, right? Maybe the clinic's busy. Maybe they're hiring. Maybe somebody's retiring and that's great. If somebody has left, and that's why there's a position open, and oftentimes we get somebody left for a family reason, somebody left to go be closer to their spouse, somebody left for fill in the blank. We tell our physicians to see if they can get the information, the contact information of that physician who's departing. Um, And I like asking the employer, and I think it's fair to say, do you mind if I get the contact information of so-and-so who's leaving? And if the, I tell our folks, if the employer box, if they say, well, we'd really not prefer to give that to you, then maybe I'd, I'd scratch my head a little bit. If they said, sure, here's our information, go ahead and give them a call. Maybe you call, maybe you don't, right? But the fact that they maybe wouldn't want you to reach out to them if everything was being left on a positive basis, if they would say, oh, the employer's great and they treat everyone with respect and the staff is wonderful and they're up to date on everything. So I do think as you do due diligence, understanding why the position's open, talking and interviewing some of the other physicians there, hopping on the phone with them, seeing if you can get along with them, even though to your point, nothing's guaranteed until you're actually there on site. That's why the due diligence phase can be so important. Again, even if the contract can't be negotiated. I I think it's absolutely critical and everything that you can do. We have people that reach out to us and say, Hey, this sounds great, but you know, can I talk to a client? (laughs) My response is absolutely. Of course there is some bias because uh, we obviously love our clients and our clients love us. And when, if they're paying us to work with us, they're probably going to say good things, but I'm happy to give you that information. I just need to check with the client themselves to make sure I can give out your info. So if a business says, yeah, you can talk to the person that left but let me make sure that they're okay giving you the contact info. That isn't a red flag. But if they turn around and say, absolutely not, I probably would be very curious because as a multi-business owner myself, you can talk to anyone I work with. Absolutely. Because I know what I do. I know I provide a ton of value and they're probably going to tell you the same thing. But if I was doing bad stuff or I wasn't doing the right thing or I didn't treat people right or I was whatever, right? And I said, absolutely not. There's no way I'd let you talk to a client of mine. That should be a massive red flag. So I, I love bringing that one up uh, just to kind of finish this off here is, is the thought on, on compensation and contracts and all that stuff. You mentioned pay on termination and I thought that was really interesting. And I, we, we actually don't talk that much about contracts in general, but I really want to, I think, finish and highlight with the pay on termination. So maybe can you go through some examples and kind of talk through what people should look for and what they may look like? If and when a contract ends, you know, it's important for the physician to understand all the what happens, right? Um, what about malpractice insurance? Are there any restrictive covenants? You know, can you quit or how do you quit? And then from a compensation perspective, there can be lots of moving pieces. So um, we've talked before about quality bonuses. Quality bonuses, they may be paid quarterly. They may be paid yearly. They might be paid on a fiscal year or a calendar year or a contract year. They may or may not be prorated on termination. So if the quality pay is 30000 and you work for nine months and quit, do you get three-fourths of the 30000 or do you get none of it? We've seen bonuses that say that they're a calendar year, but you have to be employed when it's paid. 
So the calendar year is easy, right? That's January through December, but you have to be employed when it's paid. Well, when is it paid? And the contract won't say. And so that's a clarification point. Sometimes they're not paid through the first quarter. So, which means if you think, well, I've earned the 30,000 or whatever dollar amount we're talking about, because I've worked through December 31st, you may not actually get it if you're not employed at the point of payment, which might be February, might be March, might be April, right? And so not knowing that question could cost you $30,000. And that's like a quality bonus that might be paid, you know, for physicians. And again, if it's prorated or not, it's super important to know. But all those policies on termination can be important. From a collection standpoint, again, if your RBU basis, it's pretty easy for an employer to just do a reconciliation on your last day, depending on where you are in their comp structure to balance it with what they've paid you and then pay you out any excess that they owe, assuming you don't owe them anything, which they may set off you know, your last paycheck and suck what you've been overpaid out of your last paycheck. But if you're on a collection bonus, like in a private practice, I use the example all the time. If you're on 30% of collections, and Ryan, if you're my physician today and I come in and see you for help and you say, here's my advice, John, and I owe you $500 for it, or maybe Friday's your last day. So I say, you know, here's my insurance card and maybe I give you 20 bucks. And then you guys, of course, submit it to insurance. Maybe insurance pays a different amount. Uh, maybe you accept that amount. Maybe you charge me the rest. Maybe I pay that depending on the timelines. But the time from I'm here seeing you and you're giving me your time and your professional opinion to the time that that collection hits the employer, it could be 27 days, 29 days. It could be 47 days. And if your last day is Friday, that $500 or whatever amount that you guys have agreed to accept for the insurance company may not hit until you're long gone. And if you're paid 40% of collections, should you get that $200? And the answer lies in the contract. So if the contract's not clear, then what happens, right? Then do we fight over it? If the contract says you'll be paid up to your last day, you'll be paid what? You'll be paid for the collections that have come in up to your last day because those collections haven't come in after your last day. And so it's important for the physician to know those things because in various specialties, the average, you know, you might be 95% collected in, in 34 days, 27 days, 42 days. And it's important to know that because if the physician, depending on the practice, it could be tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on. And you're not asking for accounts receivable. You're not asking for access to the balance. You're simply asking for the percent of money that you've been agreed to. Because as you know, when I see patients for the first month or 34 days or whatever it is, I'm not making any money. You know, So I'm on a draw. So maybe I'm taking a negative balance. So it makes sense that they pick that up on the back end. That's one of the many examples on understanding how you're paid on termination. That can be a big difference. And then of course, just depending on when it ends, you have to pay back your signing bonus or your stipend plan, like we mentioned before, or, or those types of things. So understanding what happens on termination with everything, especially your compensation can be vital for every physician. Yeah, I think this stuff is so important and just bringing out the very little specifics of, well, hey, that sentence made sense to me, but what does it mean legally? That's the stuff that maybe it's kind of clear, but it's not exactly clear. And in any contract, you need it to be exactly clear because to the letter of the law, when you sign it, this is a valid contract. And let's say it blows up and you have attorneys and it's getting ugly. It literally is going to come back to what do those letters that make up that word, that make up that sentence exactly say. That's where, you know, interpretation comes in. It gets ugly. And so you want to make sure that everything is 
negotiated, thought through. And whether you agree at the point or not, it's not a negotiation to make you more money or, you know, to take more for the employer. It's just to understand what they mean. And do you agree with those terms? And one piece that you said, and we, you casually went through it, right? Of, Hey, well, maybe this means $30,000 to you if you, you know, were to not do this or to do this. And we could get lost in, well, I'm about to make 300,000 and, you know, I'm going to do this and do that. And maybe the 30 K it's important, but it's like, ah, sweep it under the rug. It's microscopic in the terms of the contract itself. Everything we talk about on the show, think about $30,000 trying to have to save that money for a second. If you saved a thousand dollars every month, it would be almost three years of saving. Can you guys find a thousand dollars that you were not saving already and just instantly find it right now? A thousand bucks. A few of you. Yeah. You're like, yeah, I make enough money plenty of savings rate. I'm good. A lot of you be like, heck no, that's a lot of money. Right. And imagine saving that amount of money randomly today for the next 30 months, $30,000 is a lot of money. And if that's something that you're making that mistake, that is a costly one. You can obviously overcome that. That's a hard pill to swallow, so to speak. So John, I appreciate you coming back on the show. Everyone knows that you're the founder of Contract Diagnostics. You've got a fantastic team there. Maybe just give them a one quick sentence thing on maybe how you can help them out because there's a lot of value you guys are bringing uh, to, to the community, uh, to my firm, Physician Wall Services, because we refer a lot of stuff to you guys. You're our go-to guys for that. But uh, maybe just give them a one-minute uh, synopsis on how you guys can help them and where to find you. We're here to help. We have all kinds of value resources at the company. One thing that we have every other Thursday night or so, we have a free educational session. They can sign up for that at Contract Diagnostics under our services tab. It's free. It's unbranded. We don't have any, you know, buy this or sales pitches to you guys. We just educate people on contracts and we love to teach. We love to educate. It's why we started this company. And we've, we've done so much over the last decade. And we love to share what we've learned with people to help them avoid some of the mistakes that we've seen others make. So we just love to educate and teach. We've got so many great resources over on our website that they can just check that out and interact with us in many different ways over there for no charge. Yeah, if you guys listening, I have a very specific topic or thing you're interested in, you know, shoot me an email, ryan at financialresidency.com. And if enough of you are interested in the topic, we'll do a takeover, if you will, and jump into the Thursday as a, as a community and uh, get some of these answered because I'd love to go check that out as well. There's always things I can learn with contracts and I know we can all learn from those things. So, uh, John, we appreciate you being on. Uh, excited for the next two shows that we'll be talking about. I'm very excited for the last show of this month. So I'll give you guys a little foreshadowing, a little quick sneak peek is we're going to talk about negotiation. And that is something that we have received questions on and I think is really, really important. So make sure you guys stick around for that one. But John, thanks so much for being on. Switching over to our financial malpractice segment, I'm bringing on our regular contributor for the insurance side of the dark side of the financial stories, Michael Relvis from MR Insurance. Michael, what's going on, man? How you doing, Ryan? Glad to be here again. Doing well. Happy you're here. I don't know what kind of story you have for us, but we're in a good mood today. So what do we have? Yeah, no, this one's not terrible. It's more so just uh, an eye opener for people to think about as they're going through the process of buying insurance. We see it a lot. Often we get asked to review existing policies. People will come to us and say, okay, I have these existing policies. I want to make sure for one, it's the right thing. For two, I feel like maybe I didn't buy enough coverage. I need to increase it. What do I do? And we'll look at existing term insurance policy specifically is what I'm going to speak about. And we'll talk to these people about their health, their overall risk profile, 
And I'll ask a bunch of questions and just be thinking to myself, okay, this is a no brainer. This person should easily qualify for the very best rates. And as I'm reviewing existing policies, I'm looking at it going, okay, they got a third best category, super standard or standard category. What could have caused it? When you look at a policy at the very back of it is a copy of the original application that the person completed. So we can see, okay, what might've actually caused this person to not qualify for the best rates. And one of the ones that, that we see often is a person's family history. As part of the underwriting process for term insurance, an insurance company wants to know just regarding your immediate family, so parents and siblings, they don't go to grandparents or uncles or cousins or anything else, just your immediate family. They want to know if there are any early onset or premature deaths caused by cancer or any cardiovascular disease. It's pretty important, at least with certain companies. Now, over the years, 10 years ago, whether it was cancer or cardiovascular, insurance companies were using that against us, and it was increasing the rate. Today, there are companies who basically disregard cancer. They're only concerned with CAD, other cardiovascular issues. I guess they've found in their research and actuarial information that it's statistically more likely somebody who has CAD in their family history might develop it is at greater risk than somebody with cancer in the history. And a lot of times we'll look at these policies and go, okay, this was a family history thing. And the person could have qualified for the very best rates or even the second best rates something better than what they have had the person they worked with or had they themselves just given that more thought. Applying for term insurance is is like a puzzle to some extent. There are categories that we have to look at that the insurance companies are going to use in underwriting that application. And you want to go with the insurance company that's going to give you the best shot at the best rates. So if we're looking at somebody or if we're speaking with somebody who has cancer history in their family history I wouldn't apply with one company that specifically says no cancer history prior to the age of 60 and not even a premature death, but just cancer history at all. If I can go to another company that says we disregard cancer history at all, there's obviously a strategy there to go with the company that is going to give them the best opportunity at the best rates. And not everybody does that. For one, not every individual knows that. So if you are working with an agent who is informed, is a good advisor and will actually help you. They should know that. They should ask those questions and lead you to the right company. If you go to a random website to get some quotes online and you get connected with an agent who really just wants to take the application, that's it. They're not that interested in doing much more work than that. They may not even find that information out. And you as a consumer, especially as a first time consumer, might not even know that matters. So you complete your application, comes back, it comes back with an approval at the second or third best category. The agent says, hey, this is what it came back at. It's because of the family history. And you as the consumer go, okay, I guess that's what I'm stuck with. And you move on. That's not always the case. So the horror story is there are a lot of people out there paying way more money than they need to for term insurance because they just simply didn't strategize properly or didn't have somebody who helped them strategize. The lesson to learn is when you're applying for term life insurance, think about all the variables that matter and that go into which classification you're going to qualify for. Work with somebody who is going through that stuff with you. Developing a risk profile, determining you know, what factors there are to consider is really important in helping you get the best rate. Yeah. And part of that, I think, is on the information that's out there, because even myself, I'm guilty of this, too. We talk about how term insurance is so easy to get. It's so this. It's just go in, you fill out thing, and you don't think much of it. And again, we also and we've done shows on this prior, but we talk about all of this insurance 
term, dispo, whatever it is, as someone is perfectly healthy. That's the general assumption when you read anything on the internet or hear anything in a podcast or even reading a book. Most of the time it's talking about the average healthy person and you never think my family history or all these other pieces. So I think that is such a great horror story. It's not necessarily the most evil of horror stories, but I think that is just a good wake up call that everyone listening can really, really benefit from. So thank you so much for coming on and partnering us with some wisdom, sharing some of your expertise with us. For anyone who needs term or disability coverage, reach out to michaelfinancialresidency.com slash mrinsurance. All right, everyone, I love doing those financial malpractice segments. They're super fun. Uh, hopefully you guys are still loving those. Lots of stuff happening in the community. Really excited. We're adding more things like show notes and all sorts of good stuff to the financialresidency.com website. And we're going to start integrating a bunch of stuff with all of you into the show, into the newsletters, into our community. If you haven't joined our community, you can do so by going to financialresidency.com slash community. And one more thank you to our sponsor today. One last thing, remember before we go, our sponsor today is Advice Media and do not forget to schedule that consult with them to get that free $60 gift card. I kind of want to schedule a consult, not going to lie. I wonder if they'll give me the $60 gift card. Anyway, their strategic insight on what your current digital marketing is doing and not doing for you, it's important. So contact Advice Media, drpodcastnetwork.com slash advice media, like we always do. The link is in the description of the show you're listening to us in right now. All right, everyone, have a great week, and I will catch you guys on Friday. Cheers. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.